Well, tonight, if you would turn to 2 Kings, we'll be looking at the last verse of chapter 11, and then we will go on through chapter 12, verse 16. So 2 Kings 11, beginning with the last verse, and then the first part of chapter 12. Sometimes I'm asked the question, Pastor, when are you going to preach a sermon on this topic or that topic? One time, uh, several times, I've had people ask me, well, when, Pastor, are you going to preach a sermon on money or on giving? Well, here's the problem with an expositional preacher. An expositional preacher has a choice, and that is what book he's going to preach through. And as he preaches through a particular book, he has to preach what's in the text. And so if there is a passage that deals with money or giving, that will be the sermon on money or giving. Tonight, we have a sermon that touches on that topic of money and giving in kind of an interesting way. We're reminded not only that we should give joyfully even to the projects of the church, in this case, the repair of the temple, but also because God commands us to do so. Follow along as I read this description of the first part of the reign of Jehoash, sometimes known as Joash, who became king when he was just seven years old. Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take each from his donor, and let them repair the house wherever any need of repairs is discovered. But by the twenty-third year of King Jehoash, the priests had made no repairs on the house. Therefore King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, Why are you not repairing the house? Now therefore, take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people and that they should not repair the house. Then Jehoiada, excuse me. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. And the priest who guarded the threshold put in it all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up, and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and the stonecutters, as well as to buy timber and quarried stone for making repairs on the house of the Lord, and for any outlay for the repairs of the house. But there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or of silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, 
for that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of the Lord with it. And they did not ask for an accounting for the men into whose hand they delivered the money to pay out to the workmen, where they dealt honestly. The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. Now I understand that the Hebrew from this text makes it a little difficult to see the translation in English to see exactly everything that's going on in this text, but it is God's word. It, is, it will stand forever. It's for our good. Let's bow in prayer. Father, grant us wisdom and understanding from this passage. It is your word. It is not like the things of man. It shall not pass away, but it shall stand forever. Lord, I pray that everything spoken, done, and said here would be pleasing in your sight, consistent with your word, and glorifying to you. Or else, Lord, let it pass away, never to be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we approach this passage, I want you to imagine a boy the age of Iris Wise, ready to be the President of the United States. Imagine that. Imagine instead of having candidates that are approaching 80, we have candidates that are in their single digits. Imagine what priorities or policies would be for these child rulers. Who would be the advisors around them? What would be their cabinet that would help and advise them? Here is the case of Joash. He has been hidden away up until the time he is seven because there is fear for his life. All of his relatives, all those of his generation of the royal family have been killed off. In fact, he is the only legitimate seed of David left. He has been hidden in the high priest's house where he and his wife assumedly have raised him and taken care of him for six years since he was age one. Likely, he has not even seen what it's like to have a king rule a nation. Likely, he has no idea what his policies or his positions on things will be. And likely, he won't have to make all those decisions alone. But here is the case of Joash, the child king. And yet, the child king here is described in a sense of normalcy. For there's a description of it briefly of the reign of the child king before the text gives us the reforms of the child king. Here he is, seven years old, Joash, ready to reign. How does a seven-year-old reign? I don't know. I don't know how they make their decisions. They might enjoy wearing a crown and robes and those types of things, like dress up, that kind of thing. Who knows what all they'll be doing. But they don't understand perhaps all the details of what it means to rule. But here is the description. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibia of Beersheba, and Joash Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. There's a return to normalcy here. You see, this is the basic description that Scripture has with most of the kings of Israel and Judah. It tells us who they are. It tells us how long they reigned. In many cases, it tells us who the mother is. In this case, it's important because his mother uh, was not Athaliah. His mother was not of the influencers 
from Ahab and Israel. His mother was actually from Judah. In fact, the southernmost point of Judah in Beersheba. In fact, the description of Israel at times has been from Dan in one extreme to the southeast, the other extreme, Beersheba. But here is what the routine of the author of the Kings tells us. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The problem here is, if you know the rest of the story of Joash, you know there's a qualification here. It really is, Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. I happen to think which is a better translation than because, because here is the fact. On the one hand, we understand the priesthood has now taken the lead. Usually in this time period, it's been the prophets who have called the people back to the Lord. It's been the prophets who have led them spiritually. It's been the prophets who have revealed God's word, calling the people to reforms and so forth. In this case, God is using the priesthood. Jehoiada the priest and his wife are the ones that protected this boy's life. They're the ones who raised him in their house, and they're the ones who are instructing him. And instruction here proves its value. Jehoiada, very familiar with the first five books of the Bible and the Bible portions that were written up to this point in time, he could instruct him on the things of God and on the distinctives of the people of Israel and on what the value of worship is and on humbling himself before God. So young Joash here, he would be instructed in the ways of the king. Again, we repeated this ad infinitum through this series. The ways of the king were like this. They weren't to gather for themselves horses or money, treasure or wives. And here along the same lines, they were to do something else. They were to copy out for themselves, a copy of the law. Can you imagine young Joash learning how to write? And perhaps Jehoiada is teaching him this portion of scripture where he would begin to write out the verses of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he was to consult that word every day of his life. Jehoiada was a father figure to Jehoash. And instruction here, it says, as long as Jehoiada was living, then Jehoash was doing what is straight or right in the eyes of God. What a wonderful, wonderful description that is. On the one hand, these are good things. On the other hand, we're also reminded of a difficult thing. Before the Reformation under Jehoash is limited. Nevertheless, you always hate to hear that word when you hear something good. You know how it is. You want to hear the, the good news or the bad news first. The good news is things were well under Jehoiada. The bad news is this. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. In fact, the Reformation is limited just due to the existence of these high places. Just the fact that they were still there reminds us of the Baal worship or the false god worship or the worship even trying to worship God in places that were not prescribed by God's word. And of course, it's not just the existence of these high places. It's 
It's also the worship of these high places. They sacrificed there and did offerings there. In other words, likely some of these places were to other gods, and so they were blaspheming the true God of Israel by worshiping other gods. In other places, instead of bringing them to the temple, which at that time was God's command, they were refusing to submit to the scriptures and were taking things into their own hands, likely with those outside the priesthood or the Levites. So in other words, Reformation started under Jehoash, but it was not complete. The reign of the child king. Why is this a return to normalcy? It's a reminder. They had been in danger that they would lose the line of David altogether. It had been very unusual that Jehoash's step-grandmother or the wife of his grandfather would reign and in a very wicked way after killing off all of those who claimed the throne. Now it was a return even to have this description here, this way of describing a kingdom, was a return to the normalcy of God's faithfulness to preserve the line. But again, even when there's a good king, even when a church has a faithful leadership team in place, even when things seem to be going well, yet there may be times where there are things around the edges which remind us that Reformation is not complete. I was reminded Friday night as we went into this prayer vigil for a pro-life cause, I was reminded of why I don't usually go into Roman Catholic churches. There were pictures and statues and all kinds of things, of saints, of people, of Jesus himself, that are idolatrous. First of all, if anyone here was led to practice idolatry or to think about those things, I confess to you, I promoted that event. I'm sorry. I hope you will forgive me. However, as we understand those things, that's why we don't have those things in our space. Because our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to look at images that supposedly portray Jesus. We don't have any idea what he really looked like now in his earthly body. But we tend to worship and adore the image and not the Savior himself. We tend to lift up saints and others, even good people, even those Christians who have followed the right things, and we lift them up to places of idolatry. And so we must be careful and beware for Reformation to take place. You see, true reform begins with the person, doesn't it? It began not with Jehoash, it began with Jehoiada. It began with this man who was so faithful in his practice in the priesthood that he, he and his wife were willing to risk their lives to protect the line of David in the promise that God had given him that king. And they were willing at great cost to recruit leaders and recruit others throughout the kingdom of Judah to come and risk their lives to proclaim the kingdom under Joash. 
And they were those who were willing to stand beside this king, instructing him in the ways of God. And true reform began not with the heart of Jehoash, but with the heart of Jehoiada and his wife. But then it begins to flow out to others. Now we have some questions about Jehoash, but he started out so good. As long as his mentor and advisor Jehoiada was living, he did what was right in God's eyes. From his understanding and the wisdom of a godly man, here he was able to reign and rule in a proper way. True reform begins with a heart dedicated to God. And here it is. The results of a king doing what is right in God's eyes. And then here are the reforms. They're not lengthy. You would think that in a 40-year reign we'd get more than one chapter about this king. Especially, you might think that we would get details of what it was like to be a teenager as a king or what it was like to, to live for 40 years as king, but here it just tells us of one particular reform, and that is the reform of the repair of the temple. <laughs> so he began to institute the temple repair fund. That sounds like a, quite a reform, doesn't it? That Second Chronicles, the description there tells us he calls all the priests and he calls the Levites and he calls Jehoiada into his office, so to speak. And he tells them we need to repair the temple and he wants them to go out here, out into the campaign of the people and begin to ask them for money. And he repairs, he, this fund is to come from three sources. Remember, in the Old Testament, there were many ways people would bring either money or sacrifices into the temple. So he cites three particular sources. The first is the census tax. If we were to look back in Exodus chapter 30, verses 13 through 16, particularly verse 13, we read these words about the census tax. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel, the shekel is 20 jeras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone, it says, who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. That is one source. They would each give half a shekel once a year. That was the census tax. They were to bring that. In this case, now it was being designated for the temple repair fund. That's one source. The next source is described as this in our text tonight, the money from the assessment of persons. Now, there's all kinds of debate as to exactly what that was. I tend to agree with one author that says this comes from Leviticus 27, 1 through 8. It is actually from what you might call the service vow. In that portion of scripture, the first verse, eight verses of chapter 27 indicate that someone can vow something to the Lord, and instead of coming and serving with the people, they can instead pay money. And so there's a valuation that takes place of how much money they should pay. So this is the source. It's a vow that somebody has made to the Lord. So we have the census tax, the service vow, and then what is the other one? The money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord. In other words, this is free will designated offerings. 
That's what we call them in our church. You can give either an undesignated offering, which goes to the general fund, or you can give a designated offering to one of our approved funds in the church. So here it is. They have designated this offering to their temple repair fund. And then, if we turn to the Second Chronicles portion of this passage, we understand that they not only had this opportunity to give at the temple, but the Levites and the priests were told by Jehoash to begin a traveling donor campaign. And so they went out all through the cities of Judah collecting money for the temple, temple repair fund. So in case you wonder, when was it the churches started these kinds of funds? It goes way back into the Old Testament. Here is this temple repair fund. Now, why is it that they needed to do this? Well, the temple now was well over 100 years old. You can imagine it had begun to decay. Repairs needed to be made. And, of course, the last couple of kings were wicked kings. Some of them really didn't care about the worship of the Lord at all. In fact, they were worshiping Baal. And so here now, there was this problem but also in 2 Chronicles, it tells us that the sons of Athaliah, probably her son who was the king in particular, Ahaziah, they had actually gone in and destroyed parts of the temple. They had basically ripped off things from the temple for the service of Baal. So in other words, there were temple repairs because of the age and condition of the building, but there were also repairs to be made because of what the wicked rulers of the kingdom and their families had done to the temple. So here he authorized this traveling donor campaign from these three sources, the census tax, the service vow, and designated free will offerings. And you expect them to go and be very successful, and it indicates that they did gain some money from it. But the problem is this, by the 23rd year, verse 6 says, we don't know what year this started, it, it probably wasn't year 1, but it probably was early in his reign, by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priest had made no repairs to the house. Here they were collecting money, right? They're collecting money year after year, they're traveling to the towns and the money's coming in, and they're supposed to repair the house with these funds, but the priests evidently, probably because their priorities were different or perhaps they didn't know what to do, whatever the case may have been, repairs were not made. So what happens? In this case, the king, who is acting rightly under Jehoiada the priest, and yet at the same time Jehoiada the priest is one of those who are out in charge of this fund, he calls Jehoiada into his office along with the other priests and the Levites in charge of this fund, and he tells them, or asks them, why are you not repairing the house? What does he do? He's bringing accountability to the process, isn't he? You deacons take note. You know, if you collect funds for a particular purpose and five years later nothing has been done about that particular purpose, 15 years later nothing's been done about that particular purpose, then there might be a time when somebody calls you into their office and begins to hold you accountable for the lack of work. In fact, it's interesting, in the Second Chronicles version of this event, 
when he tells the people to do this, he told the Levites, I want you to hurry, do this quickly. And then it tells us they did not do this quickly. He doesn't even miss words. He tells them, do this quickly, and then the, the narrator just says, they did not do this quickly. And so here it is. What do you do when you've collected money for a particular purpose and it hasn't happened? He says, now therefore, take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. So the priests agreed they should take no more money from the people and they should not repair the house. In other words, a restart was necessary. They had to stop for a moment. He was confronting their lack of work, understanding here that it was his goal that this temple be a symbol of the reforms of the nation. And so they ceased the collection temporarily. Now, does this ever happen in church? Surely there's not a church that collects money for a certain purpose and then never uses it for that purpose, right? You know, each year when we prepare the packets for our particular annual meeting, I am reminded to go through some history in order to make sure everything's in order. And I went back to the history even before, a couple of years before I arrived, and I found in the notes that there was a collection to be taking place for the fellowship hall that they wanted to build. Lo and behold, how many years did it take before we built a fellowship hall? And also there was a time period here because of certain circumstances or things that had taken place in our church where we felt the need to cease the way that we were doing our finances and set up a financial policy where we set up funds. Things like the Carolina Forest Fund or the Deacon Fund or those things that we have. And we set up a way in which it would be done properly and with accountability. There's a time when you must review and stop what you're doing and try to figure out what you must do next. But instead of just saying, okay, we're not going to repair the temple, the money's gone, we don't know what happened to it, they restarted the process. Verse 9 says, Jehoiada the priest took a chest, poured a hole in the lid of it, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. <laughs> this is the reformation of the collection process. They took it out of the Levites' hands. Now, it's evident here, some people will say, well, this shows they were actually embezzling the money or were dishonest with the funds, but you'll notice here, Jehoiada and others were still involved in transferring the money from one place to the other, and Jehoiada was being involved in counting the money, so we don't think here was dishonesty. Dishonesty was just a slacking of what they were supposed to do. So it was taken out of the Levites' hands to go and, and have this campaign to raise money, and instead they began this accounting process by which they would have a box in the back much like we do in our church, with a hole in it. The people would put their offerings in it, and then when they realized that box was getting full, here's what they would do. Verse 11 says, or verse 10 says, And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up, and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. There was a counting here not just by the Levites, but by the scribe of the king. So this was the reformation of the collection process. They said, now no longer are we going to just have the Levites handle all the money. 
We're just going to put a box there. People put the money in the box. When it's full, take the money out, count it up, put it in bags, bring it, and we'll make sure that everything is in order. But not only was the reformation of the collection process to take place, but there was also a reformation of the construction process. Verse 11 says, Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they describe this work, the carpenters, the builders, the stonemasons, those who quarried stones, stone cutters, purchasing supplies like timber and quarried stones and all those things that were for the outlay of the repairs of the temple. And he reminds us the priority was not the vessels of the temple, the, the silver and gold objects like snuffers and bowls and trumpets and all those things. The priority was the temple and the external repair. So there's a reformation of the collection process, there's a reformation of the construction process. You have direct funding now of the workers, so it doesn't go into the hands of the Levites so that they can initiate the repairs. Now it goes directly from the collection to the workers. So there's no opportunity for the Levites to do something else with the funds. But notice here one little thing. The integrity of the workers. Isn't that wonderful? These workers, they said they didn't have to give an accountability to these workers, for they were honest men. Reminds me of how God treats workers like this in Scripture. Perhaps you remember the names Bazalel and Maholiab. When God commanded Moses to construct the tabernacle, he said, I'm going to raise up people like Oholiab and Bazalel who are filled with the Spirit of God in the work of gold craft and silver craft and all kinds of other craftsmanship. And it reminds us that God honors not just the work of Levites and priests. We don't lift a pastor up on a pedestal because he's a worker in God's kingdom. He is but one worker. All of the workers are important. And these gifts are so valued to the Lord. And so here it is. These integrity, this integrity of the workers reminds us of God's love for the blue-collar man. But in all this... We get to the end of the passage, and we see that they did not ask for an accounting for the men into whose hand they delivered the money to pay out to the workmen, for they dealt honestly. And then verse 16, the money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. You see, this is a restatement of the fund's purpose. We need to do that sometimes. And sometimes if the congregation has questions or leadership realizes they're not doing what they thought they should do, then they set priorities. First priority of this fund was the external repair of the temple. The second priority of this fund, as Second Chronicles tells us, once they completed these repairs, then they began to pay for the temple vessels, the snuffers, the trumpets, and so forth. But there's always been a constant priority pay for the priests. In other words, the constant worship of God was to continue through all this process. The underlying priority, even though they needed the repairs, and even though they, they needed to do these things to please God and see this symbol of reformation in their land, yet at the same time, the most important thing was the ongoing proper worship of God. And the payment for the priests was so vital. In fact, this was probably one of the reforms 
It's very likely that under the wicked kings, they didn't care about paying the priests. They didn't institute. In fact, they were robbing the temple rather than supplying the temple. So here it is, this constant priority, paying the priests was actually reminding themselves of restoring the centrality of the temple in the lives of the people. You know, we live in a day and age where the church means less and less often, even to the people who go to that church. I remember the days growing up when pretty much everyone who was associated with the church had their funeral in the church. I remember when nearly every wedding took place in a church building. And I remember when the community, especially a small community, the, the worship, not just the worship, but the social life of the people centered around the church. It was the place where they would go to enjoy each other. It was the place they would go to mourn with each other. It was the place where they would go to, to remind themselves of certain events in their community. Now, however, many church buildings are open for one or two hours a week. They go there for the practice of corporate worship. And then the rest of the time, that building is left empty and unused. But here, we're reminded of the centrality of the temple. Everyone was invited to come in. Everyone had a part. As Second Chronicles tells us, they joyfully gave the census tax. Can you imagine joyfully giving a tax of all things? How many of you joyfully give your taxes to the government? How many of you joyfully give your tithe to God? God commands that 10% of your income go to his kingdom. And his kingdom is described in this time of the world's history as the church. So 10% of your income is supposed to go to the church. And you know, that is... Some, for some people, very hurtful to their pocketbook. Do you give it with distress? Or do you give it with joy? Here it is. They gave with joy because they were reforming themselves. They were understanding the centrality of God in their lives and the place of God's people and his temple in the community. So for Joash and Jehoiada, this reform was the major fruit of Joash's right reign during the time he was instructed by Jehoiada. What a wonderful process. What a wonderful reminder of accountability. But we'll find that the issue here about Jehoash, particularly if you come back next week for the evening service, who was Joash really? Was he really a righteous king? Or was he something else? Let's consider those things. Let's also consider our giving and our accountability here in our church as we seek not only to restore our, our building and our property and all those things, but if we are making God's people, the church, the central part of our lives. Father, we thank you for these reminders from Scripture. We thank you that you address even the everyday things of our lives, like money, like worship, like the idols of our cause. Father, reform us. Tell us when we must stop something and restart. Tell us when we must be held accountable. Tell us when we need a push in the right direction that we might be joyfully worshiping you in all areas of our life. In Jesus' name.